0: Hello, and welcome to the Verse Verse Podcast. My name is Justin Thomas, and I'm really excited for our journey from Genesis to Revelation a couple of chapters a week. My goal is that you would grow in your ability to understand the story that the Bible tells as a whole, as well as your ability to read the Bible for yourself. I would love to connect with you on social media. You can find us at verse slash verse, all spelled out, on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in. We are going to pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 14 tonight. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. It's been a few weeks since we were together, so remember here, um, what happens is one of David's sons, in David's older age, his sons are now adults, uh, rapes his stepsister. And David does not respond to this by taking any sort of action, although the Bible tells us that he's angry. Uh, Another one of his sons, though, who happens to be Tamar, the victim's brother, full brother, um, he does take action. He sets up a plot and invites Ammon, this rapist half-brother of his, to a party far from the palace and then kills him. And so because of this, He's been living away in kind of exile, away from Jerusalem. Um, But David is not just grieving the son he's lost in murder or the rape of his daughter, uh, but he is also grieving the distance of his son Absalom. And so Joab here, who is his primary military general, knows this is where he's at, and he starts to try and maneuver towards a fix. And so verse 2 Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to them." Uh, excuse me, thus to him. So Joab puts words in her mouth. Now, it's interesting that this is the second occasion where David is confronted, not with a real story, but with a fictitious one. After his sin with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan comes to David, and he says, David, there is a man, and all he had to his name was a sheep, and he had a very rich neighbor, and Nathan makes up this story to incense David against his own sin, and it works like a charm. And so Joab has a similar plan, and he hires a clever woman as an actress, effectively, to present another false circumstance to get David to see the situation he's in as well. And so um, the story isn't spoiled to us. We just watch as Joab whispers the plan in her ear, and then we get to watch it play out in real time, starting in verse four. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, save me, O king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? And she answered, Alas, I am a widow, my husband is dead. Now, notice she, like Nathan, is coming here and presenting a legal problem. As a widow in the kingdom, she is coming as the needy uh, who needs the king on her behalf to help her. And so she has his full attention, he's ready to side, to pass judgment on the matter... Um, And so, here is the story she presents, verse 6. Your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, so that they may put him to death for the life of his brother, whom he killed. Now, the law, going all the way back to Genesis 9, requires that the life of the life taker be taken in return, capital punishment for the the sin of murder. And so the story the woman presents here, both the victim and the culprit are her sons. And so the tension she's feeling is she's lost one of her sons, One of her sons has been killed, her husband's already long gone, she has no one else in her household, no one to take care of her, no one to her name or legacy, no child to pass on her future to, except for her murderer son, and the whole village comes knocking on the door and says, deliver him over to justice, for he must die. Uh, And so she continues, so they would destroy the heir also, and they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. If they kill my son as well, there will be no line. My my husband's name will not continue, um, and she uses this beautiful picture. It would quench my coal. She has one coal burning left on the hearth, one thing providing warmth and a future, uh, and they want to put it out. And so, verse 8, the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And so, basically, he says, I'm going to take the case. Now, it's worth pointing out here that her story sounds surprisingly familiar. I mean, notice the details. It's not just two brothers one a murderer and one a victim, but notice the place the crime takes place. In verse 6, your servants had two sons and they quarreled with one another in the field and there was no one to separate them. It sounds surprisingly like Cain and Abel. Uh, which significantly is not only the first murder recorded in scripture, but also an occasion of family murder, of regicide, if I remember the right term, of killing a sibling. And so if you remember how that story plays out, it's significant. Because Cain kills Abel, and then Cain starts to fear for his life. Now this is before Genesis 9, it's before the days of Noah where God states this rule of capital punishment, but Cain's uh, afraid that if he took a life, there's nothing to stop others, especially his family, from taking his life as well. And so God graciously promises to protect Cain from that consequence, but he does give a consequence of his own. Not capital punishment, but banishment. Cain has to leave and wander the earth, and he can no longer uh, be a farmer. The ground will no longer yield from him. And so, if you read the tail end of chapter 4, Cain goes and he sets up what becomes a city, uh, and he lives apart from Jerusalem. And then God graciously gives Adam and Eve another child, a third son, Seth, who kind of takes up the torch and the lineage that moves on from there. Now it's worth pointing out that story because of what happens next. And so David says he'll take the case and then verse nine, the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his thrones be guiltless. In other words, she says, if you're concerned about your place of judgment, your responsibility in this case, let the wrong decision, even if it's a wrong decision, be on me. She says, let me be the true worthy of punishment here. Let me bear the guilt for my son's sin and for your judgment. Stand with me and, and deliver him to me. Verse 10, the king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. And so he says, all right, I will be your son's protector. I will stand for you and him. And she said, verse 11, please let the king invoke the Lord, the God, the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son not be destroyed. And so she wants him to take a vow. She wants him to publicly declare before God um, that the son will not be killed. And he says, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And so once again, we see David give a sentence on an objective external case And now the speaker brings it to bear on his own circumstances. Verse 12, now notice the humility that she does this with. The woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, speak. And the woman said, why then? Have you planned such a thing against the people of God? Okay, so notice here she's starting to connect the dots. It wasn't really about a woman and her two sons. It's about the people of Israel and the lineage of David. They've already lost one potential king in Ammon, and now are they going to lose another one in Absalom? And she says, continuing, for in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again, but God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. And so now she turns to the character of God and she says, all of us are mortal. All of us are headed towards death, but God is gracious and he has a way home again. Um, verse 15 now I have come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought I will speak to the king it may be that the king will perform the request of his servant the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God and so now she just puts it all on the table she says I've come here and I've told you this story She continues, verse 17, And your servant thought, The word of my lord the king will set me at rest, for my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The lord your God be with you. And the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. Okay? So he's he's struck by this. He's moved by this. But he's also a little suspicious. And he says, Okay, it's my turn to ask a question. Now I want you to be honest with me. And this is what he asks. He says, uh, she says, okay, let the Lord my king speak. And the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered, said, as surely as you live, my Lord the king, one cannot turn to the right or to the left from anything that my Lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. And so she basically says, that's right, you've seen through it, you know everything that's going on. Then the king said to Joab, behold, now I grant this, go and bring back the young man Absalom. So David is moved by this, and he seeks to restore Absalom. Now a really important question is, good idea or bad? Right or wrong? And to be honest, everything that we're going to look at tonight, first off, we have to remember is already tilted away from the goodness of God's will and that tilting goes back before Ammon and Tamar it goes all the way back to David's sin with Bathsheba okay as was promised one of the consequences of David's sin especially because of his killing of Uriah was that the sword would not depart from his house In other words, there was going to be internal conflict, and so we've already seen him lose one son to that, and things are going to get more intense. The reason why I think we may have a clue on what to do with this is because of the presence of Cain and Abel. If we look at God's character with Cain, he is generous, he is gracious, and he does spare Cain's life. But just like Adam and Eve, you know, when they leave the garden and the flaming sword is set, there's no going back. In the same way, there's no going back from Cain. His banishment is permanent, even though it's a gracious sentence. And so it's, it's striking here that actually what Joab and the woman from Tekoa are moving towards and what David does is beyond that, and it's a restoration of Absalom. And here's the worst part, as we'll see. It's a restoration without actually addressing the sin itself. It's a restoration without repentance or confrontation or confession. It's just bringing him back in, and I think that's problematic. I think that's part of what goes wrong. It's, it's in a long line of wrong things, and that makes it very hard to judge. Nobody would doubt neither the heart of David or the graciousness uh, in letting Absalom come back, but as we'll see, even if you want to look at it and say this is the right move, it might not be the wise move. And so, 22 Joab fell on the face of the ground and paid homage and blessed the king and Joab said today your servant knows that I found favor in your sight my lord the king and that your king has granted the request of his servant. so Joab, Joab arose and went to Gesher and brought Absalom to Jerusalem and the king said let him dwell apart in his own house he's not to come in my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now, two things. One, notice that he brings him back into the city. He restores him probably back to his own house and to his own property, but he doesn't give him access to the king. In fact, it may even be here that this would be a limitation because remember, the presence of king is not just a place of honor. It's also a place of tremendous privilege. And so it's almost like here Absalom is under house arrest but the house arrest has been moved closer. But that's not enough for Absalom. And so verse 25, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Okay, so a shekel is uh, somewhere between two or five ounces, and so we're talking here about five pounds of hair annually. He had a thick mane of hair, and apparently it was part of what made him so attractive. And so uh, it tells us this detail here, uh, and then it gives us another detail, verse 27. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Okay, and so he has a beautiful family as well, and then the story moves forward for two years. Now, why does it give us that aside? One of the things that Hebrew storytelling always does is prepare you for what's coming. And so a lot of times we get introductions to characters, and then we just leave them on the shelf until they're needed. In the same way here, we get a few defining characteristics of Absalom and his family to prepare us for what's to come. Uh, because we're going to see that Absalom becomes uh, outright presidential in his presentation to the people. And one of the things that makes that possible is that he's pretty good looking. He's, uh, he's a Kennedy, if you will. Um, and so that goes with everything And so he's living in Jerusalem, but no activity with his dad, verse 28, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. So now Absalom is the actor, and he tries to get Joab to come to him, because he can't go to Joab, remember, Joab's in the palace, so he can convey a message to the king, and Joab refuses to come, and so notice here how Absalom gets his attention. Then he said to his servants, see, Joab's field is next to mine. He has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? He goes, all right, I know what will get his attention. Let's do a little bit of arson. And he lights this field on fire. And so Joab comes running home, and they're like, we, it wasn't you know, enemies or spies. It was our next-door neighbors that set it on fire. I don't know why they did that. So he comes to Absalom's front door to ask what's going on. Now, if anything, this shows us the character or lack thereof of Absalom. It's a tantrum. It's childish. It's childish. There was an occasion uh, when I was a teenager and I got very upset with my father uh, because he was very angry with my siblings and I felt like he was out of line. And I was trying to get his attention and he wouldn't give it to me, so I picked up a dining room chair and slammed it into the wall. Okay. It's, I don't ever remember being so actively angry, internally angry, sure but I've never acted so angry as I did just then. But it was not a mature move, especially in the fact that I was responding to my father's immature anger. I did so immaturely. I showed that I'm clearly his son. But what Absalom does here is so childish, it's hard to put any better spin on it. It's not not a necessary move, and it shows us here, most importantly, that Absalom will not settle for anything less than his plan. And he's got to get moving on that. He's got a five-year plan. And so he says, verse 32, Absalom answered Job, Behold, I sent you word to come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of king. And if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. And so he challenges his dad. He says, Either forgive me or kill me. Deal with this or stop punishing me. And so he sends this message with Joab, verse 33. Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bound himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Okay, and so at least in appearances, the peace here is restored. But one of the things that I think we see in David's life and in his household uh, is, is that the deeper issues never get dealt with. And so there's, there's restoration at the surface level. Appearances are good, um, but the issues aren't dealt with. And to some degree, um, that seems to be David's problem. Now, Absalom's about to rebel and try and take over the kingdom. That's Absalom's problem. But David, throughout the rest of his life, from basically uh, his sin with Bathsheba on, uh, his primary role is one of inactivity. And sometimes, as we'll see tonight, that's tremendously meek. He is not going to fight for the things that God has given him. He's not going to identify himself as being in the right and use his authority to demand justice. But this isn't about the story of Tamar. The story of Ammon isn't about sins against David. It isn't about meekness at all. His role as king, and I don't know how else to read it, is compromised by his inactivity. It was compromised when he doesn't do anything about his own son raping his own daughter. It's compromised when he doesn't do anything uh, because that inactivity leads to the activity of Absalom, which then murders the offending son. And here, again, there's inactivity. It's it's like he, he caves and he gives in and he allows, but we never see David as a driving force. He doesn't go, I should go get Absalom. He just gives in and then he gives in and so now there's this superficial restoration everything is as it should be joab and especially absalom were happy Um, but chapter 15 verse 1 after this absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him that's an entourage okay and it's not just an entourage it's a royal entourage Okay. And he's here we're going to see this is the beginning of Absalom's campaign to take over his father's job. And it begins by making people see him royal, see him regally, be impressed by his presence. And so when he travels now, he travels with a chariot. We'll see a similar uh, attempt later in the kings of Israel for the same reason. This is uh, the equivalent uh of of spin of uh hiring a pr firm except absalom's a smart guy so he doesn't have to hire anyone verse two absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate and any man who had a dispute to come before the king for judgment absalom would call out to him and say from what city are you and he would say You're servants of such and such a tribe in israel and absalom would say to him you know what your claims are good and right but there's no man designated by the king to hear you." Now, we need to see this for what it is, okay? Absalom gets up early every morning, goes out a little way outside the city so that anyone coming into Jerusalem comes by him first. He calls them out, asks them where they hail from, and then when he hears that they've come to approach the king to get justice, just like the woman of Tekoa did, he goes, you're not going to find any justice in Jerusalem. You're not going to get... Now, we know that that's not an accurate reading of what was going on. We read chapters and chapters ago that Israel came to the king and found justice. This wasn't only David's appointed role. It was one that he was doing well as his appointed role. But these people don't know the difference because they never make it to David. And so he intercepts them, and he, he basically says, you might as well just give up and go home. If only God would appoint someone. And then notice what he says in verse 4. Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Now, these strangers coming to the city may not know Absalom, but we do. What does this justice look like? It looks like a plot and a death at the dinner table, right? That's what it was for Ammon. That's what it looks like for him. But here he presents himself as what Israel really needs. Verse 5, And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And so whenever anyone would come and seek to bow before Absalom, he'd pull them up off the ground and he'd embrace them and kiss them on the face. Right? What does that say? It says, We're all equal here, brother. Right? He's equal. In fact, we don't have to ask what he's doing because it tells us in verse 6, thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now, for us, stole the hearts is not only something we sometimes say about people in similar positions, uh, but for us it's almost always, if not a positive statement, at least an acceptable one, right? It's, it's the 13-year-old girl Uh, you know, in the show that nobody expected to be a great singer that steals the hearts of the audience. But the way this word is used here and the way it's used in the story of Jacob and Laban in Genesis shows that this is a negative activity. It's deception. It's trickery. Okay? He is tricking all of the men of Israel. Why? Because he's got a plan to take over the throne. And he knows the easiest way to do that is to start by getting the nation on his side. And so verse seven, at the end of the four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Gesher in Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And so he comes to David and he says, I need to take a trip to Hebron. I made a vow while you had me in exile that if you ever returned me, I would give my offerings to the Lord. I would fulfill my vow in Hebron. Now, in one sense, that's not really surprising, especially the focus on Hebron because that's where Absalom was born, right? Before Jerusalem was where David was set up, he was set up in the city of Hebron, deeper in Judah, and that's where Absalom, he's born during that time. What makes this completely unbelievable is that he's been living in Jerusalem now and even in David's good graces for four years before he ever comes forward and says oh yeah I made a vow now if you read about vows in Deuteronomy one of the things that says explicitly is not to tarry in fulfilling your vow but here as we'll see he really isn't going to worship God this is the final phase of his plot and so Uh, One of the things that's significant to notice about Absalom, like we've seen with other characters in this story, he has no real tangible relationship with God at all. God is a means to an end here, a way to convince David to let him go, but we do not see Absalom consulting God, we do not see Absalom interested in God's will. In fact, his reliance on other sources will be part of his downfall, as we'll see But he presents this ruse about having to go and pay back a vow. And so David, the king said to him, go in peace. Now he's not going in peace, he's going in treachery. But David, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Now, notice what he's doing here. I remember listening to, it was probably an episode of X minus one. X minus one was an old radio uh, sci-fi show, kind of like the Twilight Zone, but in the radio age. And I remember listening to an episode where these ads started appearing in the paper that said, the Martians are coming. Very soon, they'll be here. And another ad a week later, they're coming very quickly and it kept rolling out and so it's leading forward and then finally there's an announcement of a parade to welcome the coming of the Martians and everybody gathers in the street and there they are and they peacefully take over the world because of a good PR campaign because everybody thought it was just a marketing ploy and so they're ready and excited not realizing it's really a takeover. In the same way here, this is Absalom's ploy. Everybody who's already on his side, which are scattered across Israel, he says, as soon as you hear you know, my messengers and their shofar, I want you to be the first to interpret what it means. I want you to put a positive spin on this and say, guess what, now Absalom is king. And so he sets this up. He has spies all over the kingdom, and then there's one last piece of his piece of his plan here. He says here... Um, Verse 11, with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. Okay, so what's with these 200 men? These are David's closest companions. These are his counselors. This is his cabinet. This is anyone who matters in Jerusalem who would help David stop this plot, and so he just conveniently takes them off the playfield. Right? He removes them and takes them to Hebron. He holds them hostage, but not in the sense that he's got them in a room locked up. Hebron's quite a ways away. They're never going to get back in time. Okay? Um, But basically he isolates David uh, by separating him from the men he needs most. And so, verse twelve while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gylonite, David's counselor, from his city. Gilo. Now Ahithophel here is uh, a counselor who we'll learn later is so respected that everything he says is gold. He's just, he's a well-respected counselor, not just for Absalom, but for David as well. So why, when he has this well-respected and close relationship with David, why in the world here does he abdicate and support Absalom? The thing you have to remember is Ahithophel's granddaughter is Bathsheba. Ahithophel is the grandfather of the woman who David sinfully took, committed adultery with, and then killed off her husband. Now, that may become significant again in just a minute. We're not told his motivation for changing sides, but I would suggest to you that that's a significant one. And so notice here, the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. He realizes that in Jerusalem, he and his household are sitting ducks. And so the only thing to do is to run, to leave. In fact, as we will see, uh, so so you have to kind of understand the layout of Jerusalem for what happens next. David is going to leave Jerusalem headed eastward. And so that's going to bring him into the Valley Kidron and over the Mount of Olives. Remember these places from the Gospels? Over the Mount of Olives and then eastward on the road that leads through Jericho to the Dead Sea and the River Jordan. Okay, by the time Absalom gets back to Jerusalem with his forces, David has just barely cleared the Mount of Olives. Now, that might sound like some distance to you, but let me tell you, since I've been there, if I had a little bit more arm strength, I could stand on the Temple Mount and hit the Mount of Olives. It's that close. It's a very tight and narrow valley, okay? And so it's, it's a 30-minute walk maximum, downhill and then uphill. That's how far away David gets by rushing everybody. He's just barely out of sight by the time Absalom comes. And so he gathers up everybody... And he says, we've got to run. Verse 15, and the king's servants said to the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. Now remember here, if David is fleeing with his household, as we'll see in a minute, this includes not just women, but also children, okay? This is not a very fast escape, but it's as fast as they can do. And he leaves behind 10 of the women Uh, the concubines that belonged to him uh, to keep house. Now, notice he doesn't leave any men because what would happen if men were left behind? They'd be killed, okay? But he leaves these women behind. In verse 17, the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Chethrites, and all the Pelathites; these are his hired foreign guards, his bodyguards, and the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed out before the king. And the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back, stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I make you wander about with us, since I go now I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. He basically says, "Itai, you don't have a dog in this race. I know you followed me from when David was dwelling in Philistia and working for the Philistines. One of his soldiers uh, was this foreigner, this Philistine, Ittai the Gittite. And so now he basically says, you have no fight here. There's no reason for you to risk your life. Just, just go. Go back and stay uh, and he, he also says, the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. It's striking here. It's striking here that David has even the wherewithal to care so much about another person, right? Here, David is the one being threatened, and here he goes, oh, th- you shouldn't risk this. It reminds me of when Jesus is hanging on a cross and he turns to John his friend standing next to his mother and he says John take care of my mom he says mom John is now your son right it's it's a striking moment it shows how much David cares for those who have served him well but notice how he responds Ittai answered the king as the lord lives and as my lord the king lives wherever my lord the king shall be whether for death or life there also your servant will be and David said to Ittai go then pass on So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. Those are kids. Verse 23, and all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And so the city of Jerusalem is weeping, watching their king leave his throne. Verse 24, Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also up with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. And so here comes the priests who have been on David's side the whole time and they bring the ark and they're planning on taking the ark with David on his travels. And he says, no, the ark needs to stay here. Remember, David saw bringing the ark into Jerusalem as the fulfillment of what God had promised to choose a city that would be his home. But it also says something significant about the way, God, or the way David views these circumstances. Taking the ark would be a profession that God is on David's side. The ark is with David. In fact, you can imagine one of the things that might quell a revolt is where the ark stands Uh, But David is not interested in that. What he's interested in is whatever God is going to do and not the way David can make this happen. Whereas Absalom is interested in PR. We're going to see the heart of David is completely different. And so he sends the ark back in Jerusalem. He says, if God is willing, he will bring me back and I will again dwell in the city of God. Verse 26, but if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to me. It's striking here because David basically, despite the fact that this is a revolt of his own son that is undeserved, basically says, I don't know what God is doing here, but if he's displeased with me, so be it. He's willing to let God be God and as we saw with Saul, he's unwilling to take God's plan in his own hand, accomplish God's will on his own behalf. He here is so open-handed and it's going to continue Now he's also wise, and so notice verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Azimaz and your son Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until the word comes from you to inform me. And so notice, once again, David loves a good pun. And so he says, hey, wait, aren't you a seer? Why don't you go back and be my eyes? Why don't you stay here so we know Absalom's plan and then you can send a messenger? He asks uh, Zadok here to be an insider. So, 29, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, okay, right at the base of that is the Garden of Gethsemane in the New Testament, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. Okay, now that's not good traveling uh, uh, attire and stopping to cover yourself in dirt, right? This isn't camouflage, it's grieving. He's grieving that this would happen, and he's grieving in a way that is religious in nature. He's weeping, if you will, before the Lord. Um, And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And so as they're marching up the Mount of Olives, he hears the worst of it that his greatest counselor has changed sides, and he knows that that puts him at tremendous risk. And so he prays. He says, God put to foolishness the, the counsel of Ahithophel. And then notice how quickly God answers this prayer, verse 32, while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped. Behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And so Hushai is such a supporter of David in advance, he's already in mourning and meets him in this way. And David said to him, 33, if you go on with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I've been to your father's servant in time past, so now I'll be with your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. He says, you can't come with me. Now, maybe he means you'd be a burden to me in the sense that uh, maybe Hushai is old And he doesn't need one more old, slow mouth to feed. Or maybe he's just trying to say, if you really want to help me, here's a better way. And basically what he says is, I want you to go and offer yourself as well as a counselor. And I want you to seek to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. We'll notice later that the whole consequence, the whole outcome of the story turns on Hushai's role. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Behold, their two sons are with them, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Now this is one of the few places that we find this phrase friend, friend of. It's not very common in the Old Testament. It may even be here... Uh, that, uh, that this is an official title. Whether it's ascribed here or later, the friend of the king, right? This type of idea. But either way, it recognizes here that Hushai, like we saw with, Hit, uh, with Ittai the Gidite, is loyal to David. And so he comes, and notice, he comes into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Okay, so just the short walk back from the Mount of Olives, and here comes, with all of his forces, Absalom. That becomes really important because of what happens next, chapter 16. Uh, sorry, what happens next in Jerusalem, but first we continue with David. Verse 1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a 100 bunches of raisins, a 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. Now remember, Ziba is a Benjamite whose closest relationships is with the family of Saul, right? Israel's last king. And he's also the caretaker of all of Saul's last living son, Mephibosheth's property. And so here he shows up with resources to take care of of, uh, David and his family because they left so quickly, they didn't gather up goods. And so he's here to take care of that. But Mephibosheth is missing the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Where is Mephibosheth? Where is the son of Saul? Okay, if there was a time for Ziba or Mephibosheth to change sides, here's the opportunity. If they wanted revenge, because David, instead of their father, instead of Saul, was on the throne, here is the opportunity. And so David's kind of struck that he's here at all. And then he says, "'Where is Mephibosheth?' And Ziba said to the king, "'Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, "'Today the house of Israel will give uh, give me back the kingdom of my father.' And the king said to Ziba, "'Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours.' And Ziba said, "'I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight.'" my lord the king. Now, we have a question to face here, which is, is Ziba telling the truth or not? Did Mephibosheth really rub his hands together and go, finally, my chance for revenge? Now, remember, that would be a severe betrayal of a tremendous act of goodness on Mephibosheth's part, because David not only spared his life, but brought him in to eat from his own table for all of his days. David had been tremendously gracious to Mephibosheth, but the report from Ziba is he's turned against you. Now, we're going to see that's possibly not the case later, but for now, David just responds and he says, all that I had been sharing with Mephibosheth, because you've been good to me, because you've been loyal to me, I now give it to you instead. And then, verse 5, when King David came to Behuriam, now this is, it's almost... It's almost like a Dr. Seuss book. Okay, what I mean is David is trying to leave and every couple of steps he runs into someone else and has a conversation. And it happens over and over and over again. But what happens as these things go on is not only does it start to set the place for what's next, but it also reveals to us once again the heart of David, which needs to be established because at the end of the day, Absalom will be dead. And so the question becomes, did David kill his own son to protect his throne? And the answer we're going to see is a tremendous no. David, once again, is innocent of blood guilt and before the Lord, and it's other circumstances, and God who has brought him back to the throne. And so here comes Shimei. When King David came to Buriam, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, another Benjamite, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continuously. He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And so he's standing up on the hill next to the road and he's booing and he's hissing and he's calling out, you know, may God curse you, David, for your behavior. Uh, And he's throwing dirt cloths and rocks and here's what he says specifically, verse 7. Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And so he lays the guilt of Saul and his uh, son, uh, uh, at David's feet, and he says this is, is God's vengeance on you. This is God's will. This is God uh, punishing you, David. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should you let this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take his head off. Okay, this is, this is Abishai's only method. This is how he deals with every problem, is I'm just going to kill it, okay? Um, but, but remember here, Remember here how significant it is to stand against God's chosen king. Every occasion that David is presented with an opportunity to, uh, to kill Saul, he resists. I will not slay the Lord's anointed. And now this man presumes to speak on behalf of God in judgment over David, despite the fact that we well know, and to some degree David well knows, that the death of Saul he had nothing to do with. He was fighting a completely different battle in a completely different place. And even Ishbosheth, David was all ready to hand, extend to him the hand of peace. And some of Ishbosheth's own people killed him in the dark, thinking that David would be happy. But notice how David responds The king said, What do I have to do with you, the son of Zariah, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David? Who then shall say, Why have you done so? He says, Maybe the Lord did send him maybe these curses are what I deserve the open-handedness and the humility here and notice here this is the theology behind this it's not just I don't know maybe I am wrong it's something more significant it's about who gets the final say it's about who makes the call and so verse 11 David said to Abishai and to his servants behold my own son seeks my life how much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. It doesn't matter if the curse is true or if it's false. The real thing is, God can do what he wants and even his cursings will mean nothing if God is on my side. He doesn't leave himself in the court of opinion, even those who say they speak for God. And yet at the same time, I love his humility here because we know... Even if David is not guilty of the death of Saul, he is guilty of the death of Uriah. David is unafraid here to be a sinner. He doesn't seek to justify himself or to deny his sins. He's open to this, and it makes me think of the often misunderstood words of Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote in a prayer to a friend of his. He said, if you were a preacher of grace, then preach a true, not a fictitious grace, if grace is true, you must bear a true and not a fictitious sin. And so he says we can only accept the true grace of God if we own up to our true need for it as sinners. And then he says, and this is so Luther, he, he was provocative by nature, he said, be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly. Now, sometimes it's falsely attributed that the idea Luther is saying, sin all you want because there's plenty of grace. Now, even if that's what Luther meant, and I doubt it, Romans 6 is very clear that that doesn't make any sense. That goes against the grain of the real miracle God has done in making us alive in Jesus Christ. How can we who have been set set free from sin live any longer in it? The point here is not that we should go out and sin boldly, but that we should take the title of sinner boldly, that we shouldn't be afraid to be identified as someone in need of forgiveness. Listen how he continues here. He says, for Jesus is victorious over sin, death, and the world. As long as we are here, we have to sin we're going to continue to sin we're still fallen we're still broken sin still exists in us this life is not the dwelling place of the righteous but as peter says we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells pray boldly you too are a mighty sinner this this seems to be something that david understood it may be that shimei was wrong in the specifics but he wasn't wrong in general david was a sinner There were true consequences for sin. And even if, even if here Shimei is wrong, then this is just a place for God to bless David in his grace. And so he continues on. Verse 13, David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. I wonder why. And there he refreshed himself. And so here, Shimei follows all the way down the... Okay, so this is the road to Jericho. This is the long and treacherous road of Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan. Okay, it's, it's a long ways. It's rough, mountainous terrain. And then when you get to the base of it, it's desert all the way to the river. Okay, this is not... This is not a stroll. And Shimei goes the whole way yelling at and cursing and throwing things at David and his men. Now, verse 15 Absalom and all the people of men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the Archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! Now, I want you to notice here that that Hushai speaks in a way that is vague. Now, the way Absalom is going to hear this is, Long live you, king! But all Hushai says is, long live the king. Notice he does it again, verse 17. Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Okay, Absalom is so close to wisdom here. There's only two options. Either Hushai is still loyal to David, and that's bad, or he's not, in which case he can't be trusted, right? If that's what it takes to break loyalty, then you don't make him your number one gun, And so Absalom has the suspicion here, he's right, but notice Hushai wins him over with a little bit of a ego massage. Verse 18, Hushai said to Absalom, know for whom the Lord and his people and for all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be. He says, I stand with the choice of God in Israel. Once again, he doesn't say, I'm on your side, Absalom. He stays vague and not specific. He says, with him I shall remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I've served your father, so I will serve you. Even that, as clear as it may sound in the ears of Absalom, how did he serve David? Faithfully and loyally to David. And he's going to do the same thing here, but that's what Absalom wants to hear. So he he's remains, and then notice, Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What should we do? And I want you to notice the first plan of action that Ahithophel suggests. He says, okay, number one thing you've got to do here, verse 21, Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you've made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. Okay, he basically says, you need to take the concubines of your king, and you need to have sex with them to show Jerusalem who's boss. Now remember, Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. And so it's hard not to read this as not just being a politically smart move because it shows, as we see in other places, a significant identification that I am now the ruler. Just as the, uh, the concubines of Saul were grafted into the kingdom of David, so also Absalom is going to do. But it is also a direct attack against David in the same way that David directly attacked his household, Ahithophel's granddaughter's household, sexually. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel, okay? So he doesn't have sex with them publicly, but he has sex with them publicly, okay? A tent is set up on the roof so that everybody knows what's going on. And this also fulfills the promise of Nathan that your neighbor will sleep with your own household and not under the cover of darkness but in the daylight and so that comes to take pass here now in those days verse 23 the counsel that ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of god so was all the counsel of ahithophel esteemed both by david and by absalom and so david knows what ahithophel is capable of he knows how wise he is and and ahithophel has this reputation Consulting him is almost as good as getting it straight from God's mouth. Okay, now we're going to see that ends, up, uh, that ends up being the significant danger to David, and it's what Hushai has to overcome, verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. And so he says, here's the second plan of action. Right now, right now, let me go. Let me take the men that are here and let me pursue David. Verse two, I will come upon him while he's weary and discouraged, throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike only the king down and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seem right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And there's a good reason it seems right because it is a tremendously good plan of action. Right, David left in a rush, his, his uh, soldiers are limited to a couple hundred, maybe at most uh, 2,000 men, and here they've got another 10,000 plus on top of that that they can make available. Let us just speed march behind them, they're slowed down by family, they're discouraged, let us take them before the sun even comes up, under the cover of darkness. It's a great plan, okay. and if Absalom were to have taken it, the story may go differently, but notice Hushai here. Verse five, then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also and let, he, let us hear what he has to say. Now, to be honest, I don't think you can mark this decision as anything but God's sovereign intervention. There's no good reason for Absalom to go, I'd like a second opinion. And you know whose opinion I want to hear? Hushai's. But that's what he does. And to Hushai's credit, he really sells this. I don't expect many of you to read it, but Warren Weersby wrote a book called Preaching with Creativity, and the opening chapter is called What Hushai Knew, and he shows how significantly compelling what we're about to read is because Hushai uses all the tools available to him. And so although uh, Ahithophel has all the facts, Hushai paints a picture, and the picture convinces Listen to how vivid the language is here that Hushai uses. Verse 6, when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus Ahithophel has spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. And Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they're enraged like a bear robbed of their cubs in a field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He'll not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall, at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And so he says, don't you know what happens when you take baby bears away from a mama bear? He says, can you imagine how angry David is right now? Now, Hushai himself knows that's not the case. David is a broken man. But he paints this picture, and then he says, not only that, but David's so strategic, he's not going to sleep with the people tonight. You think you're going to kill one man, but all you're going to do is start a fight, and when people in the surrounding villages hear the warfare, they're going to assume David has the victory, because they can't see what's going on. And he says, at that point, you've lost the war, even if you win the battle. And Then he gives his plan, uh, verse 10, then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba. He says, call for the whole army of Israel from north to south. Now, what does that mean? It means time. Precious, precious time. Okay. He says, call the whole army by the, uh, as the sand by the sea for a multitude that you go to battle in person. He says, also, you need to be on the front lines. You need to be there yourself, and you need to be there with an army that is innumerable, okay? He says, verse 12, so we shall come upon him in some place where he's to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, okay? In other words, think of how wet the ground is when you wake up from the dew. It's all wet. That's what the army is gonna be like. It's gonna swarm David. Do you see how strong the imagery is in this whole thing? Okay, and so he says, like the dew on the ground... Um, and he says, uh, and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all of Israel will bring ropes to that city and shall drag it into the valley. The city, drag the city into the valley, and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is left to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the council of Hushai, the archite, is better than the council of Ahithophel. Now, as much as the wording here is intentional, it's as good as Hushai is in creative communication, notice the real defeating factor here is given by our narrator. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. In answer to David's prayer, God has thwarted the wisdom of Ahithophel. Verse 15, Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus, And so did Ahithophel and counselor Absalom and the elders of Israel. And thus so I have counseled. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. He says, don't stop on the west side. Sorry. Yeah, the west side of the River Jordan. Ford it in the middle of the night. It's wet. It's dangerous. You're tired, but put that boundary because it's possible they're going to go tonight. He tells him the whole story. Verse 17 Now, Jonathan and Azimaz were waiting in Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. Okay? So here, the plot is almost spoiled because these two sons of the priests are seen not in Jerusalem proper, but a little ways outside the city, and it appears suspicious. And so Absalom sends people to catch these messengers. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Barim, which had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. They climb into the well, verse 19, and the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, and they said, where is Ahimaaz and Jonathan? The woman said to them, they've gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Now, that phrase there for book of water is the only place we find this phrase in all of Hebrew. Some even suggest they've gone past the sheep to the water. We have a hard time knowing what to do with this. But if Brooke is the right translation, she basically sends them in the wrong direction. Not headed east, but headed south. Okay. So they can't find him because they're not there. They're hiding in the well. So they returned to Jerusalem, verse 21. After they'd gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. And they said, David, said to David, arise and go quickly over the water for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went home to his own city. He set his house in order, and he hanged himself, and he died, and he was buried in the tomb of his father. And so when he finds out that his advice hasn't been taken, he preparedly and thoughtfully takes his life. Now, we're not really told the motivation, but you can see what little option is left to Ahithophel. He knows that in this one decision, Absalom has lost the war. And so Ahithophel's life is effectively lost with it. But I think it it exists here significantly for another reason. One of the tensions you see throughout the history of Israel and their kings is the tension between the wisdom of men and the voice of God. And when I read about this kind of despair, it makes me think of Ecclesiastes, where the author tries to think his way out of the despair of life and can't do so. Under the sun, it's all vanity, it's all emptiness. Ahithophel here, where does his wisdom get him? To him taking his own life. Continuing on, verse 24 then David came to Mahanaim. Now you may remember the name of this. This is striking. Mahanaim is where Ishbosheth was ruling and reigning. And so here, David flees from Judea because Judea has sided with Absalom. To not just Israel, the northern tribes, but Mahanaim, the same place where Ishbosheth had set up against his rule uh, uh, many years earlier. Verse 25 Now Absalom had set Amsa over the city, over the army instead of Joab. Okay. So Amsa is his general. We'll come back to him later. Amsa was a son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nashan, the sister of Zeruah, Joab's mother. Okay. And so notice they're close to the family, uh, but a new general because Joab is left with David. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi the son of Naash from Rabbah of the Ammonites and Macher the son of Amiel from Lodabar and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils so again, we find men who uh, here are of s- some wealth and from all over the northern part of Israel and they all gather where David is and they bring him provisions. Honey, verse 29, and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat for they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Let's continue, chapter 18. Then David mustered the men who were with him and said over them commanders of the thousands and commanders of the hundreds. Now remember, we know, and David knows, he's about to be tremendously outnumbered. And so his strategy here is to divide up his army into three sections. And as we'll see, by dividing them into three sections and spreading out the army, he forces the army of Absalom to spread out as well, so they can't be unified in strength. Okay? And so he has three armies, therefore three generals. David sent out the army, one third under the command of Joab, one third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one third under the command of Ittite the Gittite. And the king said to them, I myself will go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. In other words, they say, no, the war ends if you die. Even if we lose some of us, if you're still alive in the city, there can be a round two. And so they say, David, you can't come out for this one. Verse four, the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by the hundreds and by the thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai. Now listen to this, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. So he calls together his three generals, and he says, don't kill my son. Notice he refers to him as the young man Absalom here. It's like like when you hear a parent of a terrible criminal say, you may see him as a monster, but he's still my little boy. Right, and so he commands the generals, whatever the outcome, Absalom lives. And notice all the people heard when the king gave the orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Once again, what's about to happen, David is innocent of. His desire is not to finish this, you know, with an iron fist to put down a rebellion. He wants to spare his son. Now, that's not how it's going to turn out, but the whole army heard David's heart here. So, verse 6, the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. Okay, strategic point number two. Not only does he spread into three armies and spread out the armies against them, he chooses the terrain, and the terrain he chooses is a forest, okay? In other words, David goes, let's go for guerrilla warfare. Let's use the terrain to our advantage so that it's not just, like, have you ever watched the old movies of the Civil War where soldiers just line up with guns and fire and they collapse and then they line up with guns and fire, right? What was significant about the American revolution before that was as the British came in, the Minutemen, men men like this fought in a different way. It was the same thing in Vietnam. What changed the outcome was not the number of the soldiers, but the terrain was treacherous and only known by one side, and they used that to their advantage. That's what David is doing here. And so he uses this forest to his advantage. Verse 7, the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day. Twenty- thousand men Um, now remember David's forces at best here are less than that okay and so they survive in great numbers and they they really dole it out verse 8 the battle spread over the face of all the country and then notice this the forest devoured more people that day than the sword okay now I don't know about you but when I read that I think of the two towers right? I think of ants. I think of these living trees that become soldiers, and they're the ones that win the day, but obviously that's not what's going on here. It's either one of two things. Either we chalk this up to David's brilliant military strategy, which is he uses a terrain that is inherently dangerous for warfare, and that does the work for them, or significantly earlier in Israel's history, when God is involved in warfare, it's nature that does the work, it's loud storms it's earthquakes it's the sun stands still okay either way or, either way here what we recognize uh, is that the victory comes with god's help okay and so verse 9 absalom happened to meet the servants of david absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak okay now remember israel wasn't to multiply horses uh, and and on top of that in in the ancient Middle East, the donkey was the mount of royalty. But it's still really funny to picture, right? Here comes Absalom, and he accidentally stumbles across David's men on his battle donkey, okay? And so he turns the donkey around, and he starts to run away, and notice what happens. The mule went under thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast between the oak, and he was suspended between the heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And so he's left stuck and hanging from a tree. And it may be, it's not stated directly here, but since his heavy, thick hair was mentioned earlier, it may be that he's caught by his beautiful hair. But there's a greater significance to this, okay? In the book of Deuteronomy, It makes the point that any time a body is killed, it's not to be left hanging and exposed after dark because cursed, Deuteronomy says, is any man who hangs on a tree. Now, strikingly, in Deuteronomy 27, in verse 16 and verse 20, it talks about two particular Israelites who come under God's curse. One is the one who defies and denies the respect of the parents, and then a few verses later, one who sleeps with his father's wife. Both of those things, both of those things Absalom has done, and the end he comes to here is not due to anything less than the consequence of God's curse on him. And so he's stuck hanging from this tree. I love the phrasing there, suspended between heaven and earth. He's just hanging, completely vulnerable, exposed. In verse 10, a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, what? You saw him? Why did you not strike him to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. He's like, don't you know I would have rewarded you? That was the easiest kill. This whole thing would have been over. But notice verse 12, the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. He said, are you kidding me? Not only did I hear what the king said, but you're not gonna take the fall for me if David comes down on me. That's not gonna happen. And so verse 14, Joab said, I will not waste a time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Now that reads a little bit weird, doesn't it? Who is it who survives three javelins to the heart and then is struck by the other men and killed? Um, the word there for javelin is, is, I mean, it's the word for javelin, but it's also the word for stick. Uh, and the word for heart is the word for chest. And so some suggest that basically what Joab does here is he gathers up a, a fistful of sticks and uses them to knock Absalom out of the tree and then his men surround him and and kill him to death Um, but either way at Joab's hand here against David's wishes Absalom is killed then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them and they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones and so they dispose right here, right now, directly of his body, and they just cover it with a cairn, with a pile of rocks. And all Israel fled everywhere, everyone to his own home. Now, Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that's in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. Now, we were told earlier that Absalom did have three sons and a daughter, but at this point in his life, it appears that all of them have died. He has no children, he has no legacy. But as shouldn't surprise us, because it's totally Absalom's character, he's got a plan for that. He says, I'm determined to be remembered, so I'll build a statue in my own name. And the reason we're told this here is because instead of this pillar, which, which we can't find today, uh, nor can we the cairn, but nonetheless, here what's, what's ironic is there is this pile of stones that's a reminder of Absalom's death, right? His... Um, noble end. Uh, he called the pillar after his own name, and it's called Absalom's monument to this day, but he's buried in the woods of Ephraim. Verse 19, then Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, said, let me run and carry the news to the king. Remember who this guy is? He's one of the two sons of priests that carried the message to David, and now they want to do another lap. And so he says, let me carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you're not to carry the news today. You may carry news another day, but today you should carry no news because the king's son is dead. And so Joab says, no. He says, no, you're not going to do it. And then, verse 21, Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. And the Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. The only way I understand this, the only way I can wrap my head around this is that Joab doesn't trust Ahimeaz to put the right spin on this situation, okay? He wants to make sure that his guy, in fact, the reference here to just the Cushite makes it sound like this is a household servant of Joab's. But either way, he sends his own messenger to do the job because he knows he's just, uh, he's just denied the command of the king. Uh, and so the Cushite bowed before Joab and he ran. Then verse 22, Ahameaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let also me run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? In other words, you're not going to get there first. What's it matter? Verse 23, Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof by the gate of the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes, he looked and saw a man running alone. Okay, in times of war, back at home, clearly a messenger from the front lines. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he's alone, there's news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer, and the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate, said, see another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he's a good man, and he comes with good news. Okay, and so he recognizes this son of the priest, the same one who had brought him the message at the river Jordan, right? And he goes, okay, I bet he has good news. Verse 28, then Ahimeas cried to the king, all is well, and he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimeas answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And so it seems here like he intentionally holds back. He doesn't spoil the plot. Maybe that's just from the counsel of Joab. In fact, maybe the best way to read it, you won't have a reward if you go, is do you remember the last time a messenger came to David and said, your enemy is dead, right? Remember when uh, both with Ishbosheth and then all the way back with Saul, both of those messengers had tremendously terrible consequences because God or David was not interested in vengeance on his enemies. Um, but either way, he only says, well, there was something going on, but I don't know what it was. In verse 30, the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of the Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Now, notice what he doesn't say here. Unlike the other one, he does tell him the guy is dead, but he does it relatively tactfully. He doesn't say, yes, he's dead. He says, may what happened to him happen to all your enemies, okay? But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, yeah, Joab killed him, right? It's just left there, quietly, unaddressed, Verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gaped and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And so he's deeply grieved here, and he wishes he could have trade, traded places, but now his son is dead. Let see here. Let's go ahead and do chapter 19, and then we'll close. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. Now remember, this is not just the people of Judah or the people of Jerusalem or the people of Israel. This is the armies that are hearing this. And so here, they've dealt with a significant political threat. It's over. They've brought victory and David is weeping. In verse 3, the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. So instead of them coming, marching with victory and parade, they sneak in, tail between their legs, embarrassed of the victory because of the death of Absalom and the grief of David. And the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that the commanders and the servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, today you would be pleased. Joab says this isn't right. He says here these men have fought valiantly for you Uh, they have brought about great victory and you're weeping over the death of the son. He says, could it be true that if we were all dead and Absalom was still alive, that you'd be pleased? At the very least, it's not good for morale. And so Joab challenges him. Now, granted, and I think it's worth stating, Joab does so with very little sensitivity because Joab doesn't have any. He never has, okay? And so he challenges him and he effectively tells off David, Verse 7, now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and it will be worse for you than all the evil that's come upon you from your youth until now. He says, we've got to nip this thing in the bud. The only way this ends is if you, if you change your attitude and face your soldiers. And so, verse 8, the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. Now, Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of Philistines, and now he's fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Okay. Now, notice here, um, the first move here is with Israel. It's with the northern tribes. It's with all of those who gathered with Absalom and and they want to turn it around, but there is one holdout and that's the household of Judah. And so verse 11, King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You're my brothers, you're my bone and flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king and say to Amasa, are you not my bone and flesh? Now remember who Amasa is? That was Absalom's general, and here he gives him full amnesty, and he says, look, we're family. In fact, we're gonna see he points him to a high position in his own army. Um, Are you not my bone and flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab, okay? At this point, David has had enough of Joab. Consistently, Joab has denied his orders, worked in the background, uh, brought about his own will, Uh, And so he, he demotes Joab and takes Absalom, his general, and appoints him over his armies. Verse 14, and he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Okay, so notice here, the elders of Judah come all the way to the river Jordan, and they're going to walk all the way back to Jerusalem with David, but... Well, before, but we have to deal with this first, verse, verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Barum hurried to come down to the men of Judah and meet King David. This is, this is the man who was cursing David and throwing rocks, right? And he makes sure he's at the river for the crossing as well. And notice what he says in verse 17. With him were a thousand men from Benjamin. As well, we have Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and do all his pleasure And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my lord hold me guilty. Or remember how your servant did wrong on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I've come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Right? It's mostly just Judah that's here. And that's, side note, because that's who David invited, But, but... Shimei here says, look, no one else from Israel came, and here I am, I was wrong, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. Verse 21, Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered. Can anyone guess what his answer is gonna be? It's been consistent. If anything, we can say that he doesn't change. Shall not Shimei be put to death because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? In other words, if I'm being reappointed, then it's amnesty. That's the name of the game. Verse 23, the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. Now, side note, remember that Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. And so him getting from Jerusalem all the way to the river of Jordan is a significant feat. Probably one he didn't accomplish without help. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until he came back in safety. And so he also had been in perpetual mourning while David was gone, and it shows on his body. He smells like he's been mourning. He looks like he's been mourning. He hasn't trimmed his beard, or it says his toenails. The, the reference there is that he hasn't washed his feet. And maybe because of his lameness, that's actually something that's really significant. But either way, his real feelings about David are written all over his complexion. Verse 25 When he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I'll saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He says, Ziba wouldn't give me a donkey. He didn't give me away, and he just left without me. Verse 27 He slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you." He says, this is what really happened, but the decision is yours. Verse 28, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? He says, you've already given me such a tremendous gift. What it doesn't make any sense for me to fight for anything more or anything less. And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And so notice here, he doesn't restore everything to Mephibosheth. He splits it equally. And I think there's a little bit of wisdom here because all he has is two reports. Now, it seems most likely that Ziba is the one who's at fault here. And maybe David even knows it. But remember, today is not a day of judgment and death. And so he gives, and notice to his credit Mephibosheth's response in verse 30. Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. And he says, You know what? He can have everything. I'm just glad to have you back. Now, one of the things that I think is striking about Mephibosheth is he really shows himself to be the son of Jonathan here. He's loyal to David. And David is what he's interested in. In fact, he almost, seems, he almost seems somewhat like we saw in David's attitude. He's completely surrendered to the consequences. His hands are totally open. He treats David as we saw David treating God with these things. Whether there's injustice or not, all he's looking for is the restoration of David. Now, there's another character that has a following story. Remember Barzillai. Barzillai and the other men who had provided for David in Mahanaim? 31, then Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Roglim, and he went with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? He says, look, I'm so old, there's nothing you could offer me in the palace that I'll even enjoy. I'm too deaf to hear the singing, my palate, I've lost my taste. And he he says, it doesn't make sense for me to go with you. It shouldn't cost you anything. Verse 36, your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? He says, I'm just going to cross the river and then I'm going to go home. Um, he says, continuing, please let your servant return that I may die in your, my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimaham. Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. He says, if you want to reward someone, reward Chimahim. And we're not told who he is. Maybe he's a son of Barzillai. Maybe he's just a servant of his household. But either way, um, the king answered, Chinham shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan and the king went over and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and he returned to his own home. Then the king went on to Gilgal and Chinham went with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the, men of the king, uh, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have your brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all of David's men with him? Now, why is Israel having a problem here? It's hard to tell, except there's always been this division between Israel and Judah. But it may be that these are the Israelites who stood with David. And what they're really bothered by is, look, you've been so kind and so gracious to Judah who went with Absalom and you even reached out to them and said, hey, why don't you guys, you know, you sealed over this whole thing and you've just left us standing, right? It's a very small point, but it will become a really significant one. The fragmentation between Judah in the south and Israel in the north is growing. Uh, And as we'll see here, it's going to be a partial problem. But I think one of the things that's significant here is that we see that David, uh, David is tremendously merciful to his enemies, and that bothers his friends. It bothers those who stood with him. It reminds me of the parable Jesus tells of the workers in the vineyard who come at different times and then all get the same pay. I mean, how else do you explain this? They're mad that they didn't get to walk David home. That's the significance. They're bothered by the lack of honor that goes with it, and that's despite the fact that David is doling out honor like crazy, okay? They're just trying to pick a fight, and that's exactly what happens, okay? Verse 42, all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king's are close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? They say, we're not here for what David can do for us, He's just family and he's restored us. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king. In David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not first to speak of bringing back the king? they say, look, you're only two tribes, even if you're close. We're the other 10 tribes. The king's more ours than yours. And he says, besides, wasn't it our idea to put him back on the throne, to bring him back to Jerusalem? You were the holdouts, okay? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer the words of the men of Israel. Now, as we're going to see, that means that there's an aftermath that happens here. Going back to the Lord of the Rings, right, it seems like the ring's been thrown into Mount Doom, the story should end, and for some reason, Tolkien feels he needs to give us a hundred-page epilogue with more battles, skirmishes that follow, and that's what happens here. And I think the reason is actually the same. Tolkien does that, and the Bible records that, they're different, obviously. Tolkien is making up a story. The Bible is recording history. But they're both reflecting how the human heart works. And unfortunately, just because, uh, because conflict, the head is cut off, it's like a hydra. And what we're discovering here is that there's this volatile tension forming. Even under David's reign, he can barely hold together Israel and Judah. And it's not going to be surprising when under, uh, after Solomon's reign, it splits entirely. And is never restored until they both go into exile. Um, So we'll we'll deal with that last rebellion next week. And then we'll finish off the rest of 2 Samuel. But let's go ahead and pray and close for the night. Father, there's a tension to the story we just read. On the one hand, it's a story of consequence. Because this whole thing spirals out of control because David sins. And we reap what we sow. But on the other hand, it's a tremendous example of meekness because as David walks this life, he doesn't take the matters into his own hands. He doesn't seek to bring vengeance on his enemies. He yields to the will of God and expects that if God is going to work, then he's capable of doing it without David's plans or interventions. He expresses here meekness. And Lord, I ask that we would really draw from both of those lessons that we would recognize that oftentimes in our lives, because of past decisions, we're well off the path. And you're so gracious to meet, we, meet us where we are. And I pray that we would have the heart of David uh, that would rather yield ourselves fully to the good and just and forgiving judgment of God than fight for ourselves than try and prove ourselves righteous or worthy or deny the verbal attacks of our enemies. God, I ask that you would just um, help us to, even if we take the label sinner boldly, knowing that you don't forgive fictitious sinners, but only true ones. We thank you, Lord, that that's your nature, that the cross of Christ was so significant, that no matter what we've done, no matter who we are, if we just receive the gift you freely offer in Christ, we can be forgiven. Thank you for that, Lord, and we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.